0: Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than having some chicken tonight. Chicken tonight. My name's Ash Rose, your host and guide on this, the original, that means first, 90s football podcast, Alive and Kicking. Thank you very much for hitting that download button and joining us once again as we journey through another point of 90s goodness in the decade that changed football forever. And today we're finally getting around to something that um, I think I said I was going to do in probably episode one, which is quite ridiculous, but something I always wanted to do. And hopefully we'll make this more of a bulky series uh, in the coming months and weeks and into the new year, which will be our sixth year, I think, 2020? Fifth year, maybe. Yeah, year five. Blimey. It's a lot of 90s episodes. Go back in the archive and listen to them all. But what we have never done, and we are about to start today, and um, we have an ITV show to thank for it, is talk about a player, do player focus, 90s icons, if you will. So, yes, we should start today. We're going to look at a player, talk about his career, his best moments, and just go through it with one of the team as well as somebody who adores him, which we're very much doing today. And we're starting with, as I said, thanks to ITV, because there's a certain person who's doing, he's all in the jungle at the moment and getting a little bit annoyed and a little bit hungry. Yes, I'm talking about Ian right, 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 Ian Wright, right, right. We are going to start our 90s icons with Mr. Ian Wright. We're going to look back on his uh, career, both at Crystal Palace and, of course, uh, Arsenal. Myself, Joel Young, the usual hand. And we've got Chaz nuki Burden joining us once again. Big Arsenal fan and has gone on record literally maybe half an hour ago on Twitter to say that he was recording an episode of AK90s talking about his favourite footballer, ever. So if there's a man who wants to talk about him right and knows what he's talking about, it's definitely Chaz. So we'll get to that in just a second for you. A quick shout out, you may have seen this on Twitter and Instagram, to the guys at Sabuticons. These are a uh, new t-shirt kind of artwork that guys that are in development at the moment. They're on Twitter. follow them at uh, They, For us, they did specially made t-shirts of they, what they do is they take footballers and create like a Sabutio-y cartoon version of them. Um, they're very kind, and we've got a T-shirt each. So I've obviously got Roy Wigley, Matthew has got his best friend, friend, football friend, Brian McClare, and Joel is very happy with Giannino T-shirt. So thanks a lot. Check them out on Twitter. Um, there might be some more to come from the both of us together. Um, we're talking T-shirt ideas. If you'd like an Alive and Kicking T-shirt, Please do tell us on Twitter, I know a couple of you have, which is really nice, but we want to do them, but we obviously have to make sure that there, there's enough scope for them. So if you do want to wear some sort of 90s-inspired Alive and Kicking t-shirt, hips up on Twitter or on Instagram. What are the addresses? You know them by now, Twitter at AK90s, Instagram at AK90s, Pod. Right, let's get on today with show and talk a bit of righty. Um, I assume that you're going to think it is a lot, it's very Arsenal centric, which it will be, but we'll get a bit of flavour from Joel, from me. But there's also an interview. Yes, the footballer interviews are back as well. Um, in 2020, we really are going to get the show back to being at least fortnightly. Footballer interviews, uh, schedules be in rejigged so that we don't keep running into trouble where certain people can't do certain things. So there are sort of planning going on that 2020 will definitely make a live and kick in more regular more structured and more footballer interviews as well. And today, at the head of his uh, launch of his new book, which is out for Christmas, we speak to Clive Allen as well. So both sides of North London covered as well as uh, well. When it's Clive Allen, the whole of London, isn't it? But as that start this new series of Alive and Kickin' Club Icons, 90s Icons, I should say, of the era. So there's me, Joe, and Chaz chatting about Ian Wright, right, right, Ian Wright, right, right. right.
1: Sit back and enjoy a nostalgic ride through the decade that truly changed the face of football. If the 90s are now retro, then it's time for a celebration. Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast.
0: Welcome back to Alive and Kick In, and yes, here we are, 100-odd episodes in, and we're finally doing player focus pods. I told you we'd do it. I know it's taken longer than expected, but we're doing it today, and um, we've got ITV to kind of thank you for it, but we'll get to that in a second. Firstly, introduce my guest for today. Oh, he's not a guest. He's a regular. He's part of the AK90s family. Uh, Mr. Joel Young, who you've been keeping a close eye on, our subject today, because he's in the jungle, isn't he?
1: Well, this is where it came from, wasn't it? Because, obviously, Ian Wright is in the jungle and we started discussing Friday Night's All Right, which was a Friday night variety show on ITV that completely uh, it, it slipped from my memory. And, and so here we are. And I've watched some of it on YouTube and it isn't good.
0: It's terrible, uh, isn't it? We'll talk about it towards the end. But, yeah, I watched a couple of clips earlier. I forgot that Lennox Lewis was his bodyguard and... Or bouncer or something for the show. Lots of gimmicks going on. Yeah, yeah, very odd, very odd. But well, yeah, we'll talk about all that and more. Uh, joining this, uh, a self-proclaimed Ian Wright fanatic, writer, author, friend of the show, Chaz Nuki Burden. How you doing, Chaz? I'm good. How are you? We're very well. Thank you for joining us. And you are a self-proclaimed. Well, you've said on Twitter earlier your favourite player of all time.
2: Yeah, and it's not even a. It's not even a contest either. I mean, you know, as an Arsenal fan. Of this era, we've had so many players we can pick from, you know, Vieira and Adams and all sorts of people, but there's no contest. It's Ian Wright by a mile for me. It's
0: really, that's, I will get into that because that's, yeah, I mean, for me, as people know in this show, and Joel will roll his eyes as I say it, Burkamp is the, is the player that I always think, and obviously they had a great uh, uh, partnership, which we'll talk about, but yeah, Ian Wright, right, right. Um, Joel, you're, you're a, obviously a, a keen fan of the jungle. You'll find you tweeting about how do you think Ian Wright's getting on in the jungle at the moment? I've had a, I've had a
1: bet on Ian Wright. Yeah. To win. Oh, okay. Was that before it started? Uh, It was just as it started. I'm not sure he will win. But last night was funny when he was, I mean, we're doing this on Monday. So last night was funny where he was in the double tunnels with uh, Jacqueline Jacqueline Josser. That was funny. But I think the football people might go for him looking at it from a smart point of view. Uh, But nobody's really standing out. I don't think the series has caught fire yet. But, um, yeah, he's certainly coming across as very likeable, fun, keen, into it, stopping arguments. So, yeah. This is where we are.
0: Chaz. how do you feel, or do you watch it at all? How do you feel about your hero doing such a show like I'm a Celebrity? We haven't even called it what it's called yet, but I'm a Celebrity.
2: Oh, not yeah, not even going near it. Um, <laughs> basically, uh,
0: yeah, he's my hero really
2: for what he did on the pitch uh, and for his sort of general personality. And, I mean, maybe we'll come to it later, his sort of post-football broadcasting thing. But I, I just feel like his genius of his personality and his charisma was its uh, spontaneity and his, um, and just basically how, what a rebel he sort of was for want of a better term. But, um, and so when he tries to sort of conform to broadcasting to the standards, I feel like that goes out the window.
0: Yeah. It's, it's not been a fun watch. He's getting a bit testy in there and that's not really any relation to what he was drinking last night anyway. Um, okay. Let's start at the beginning. Um, I don't, I'm not going to go into... I'm one that when when they read autobiographies, the first bit always bores me to death about their childhood and all that nonsense. So this is a 90s football podcast. I'll give you... We'll start with just a little brief bullet points from his background. So Ian Edward Wright, born 3rd of November 1963. And I'm only telling you where he was born because he was a local boy to me. Woolwich, London. So yeah, I went to school in Woolwich. Woolwich, Polly, shout out to that. woo um, Ian Wright was born there. Um, he famously came to football late after failed trials with South and Brighton, and even in his early days he spent two weeks in jail for driving without tax and insurance and not paying the fines for them. He played for the Burmese based Sunday League side ten and B before signing semi professional terms with Greenwich Borough in nineteen eighty five. Uh, according to Wikipedia for thirty pounds a week. Uh, and then he was offered a Well, s- I'm gonna jump in. Go on, jump in, Joe.
1: I've just read an interview with him where he says he never played for Greenwich Borough. Oh, there you go. And he played three times for Dulwich Hamlet. Yeah, was, yeah, so was, take, take from that
0: what you will. Yeah, i am about to come on to say that he also played for Darlie Hamlet, but maybe that's more the truth than than what, what I've got and It's Good research, Joe. Well done. Um, but it's obviously at Crystal Palace where he got a trial while while being watched at Darlie Hamlet and signed for them um, in in just before his twenty second birthday in nineteen eighty five. And that's kind of where obviously we'll start at Crystal Palace. We'll have a, a brief look. Back at his time at Crystal Palace, there uh, he's partnership with Mark Bright. I mean, Chaz. Before we talk about Arsenal, do you remember the ian right of Crystal Palace, and and what what do you remember about him at that point in his career?
2: Oh yeah, I remember it vividly because it was a strange position for me as an Arsenal fan. I was actually jealous of Crystal Palace fans um, because they had this guy who I already loved, even when he played for Palace. Um, I just thought he was. I just loved his his energy, his sort of. Um, His sort of boyishness, his attitude. Um, Yeah, I was just, I I loved him already. And I always felt like, you know, he seemed like he should be an Arsenal player. I mean, don't be wrong, I think Messi should be an Arsenal (laughs) player. But, I mean, in terms of actually fitting into the culture. um, So, yeah, I do remember him. My main memory is, obviously, the FA Cup final, the way he just exploded into that match. Um, I remember, typically, I was watching that cup final uh, with my dad, who watches about his relationship to football is maybe watching about one FA Cup final in five and normally what he does is, is about 12 minutes in he sort of stares into the distance and asks me if Peter Shilton's still playing no. I mean still to this day yeah ask you a question yeah like
0: that. <laughs> yeah uh, so what do you yeah
2: and, and then Ian the Wright came on and when he equalized I was so excited I started thumping the wooden arm of the armchair I was sitting in which then woke him up and he then shouted abuse at me for the of waking up so suddenly so well, i ruined the moment but yeah, no, I just remember him. his relation, his strike partnership with Bright and his personality partnership with Mark Bright. Um, yeah, Mark Bright seemed so sensible next to him, so sort of grounded, uh, despite the fact that he once elbowed Andy Linegan's nose into 10 pieces during the FA Cup final. But I loved, uh, yeah, I loved Ian Wright and I just couldn't wait for him to come. And as soon as I found out that he was the mates of people like David Rocastle and Kevin Campbell, I think it's particularly Rocastle. I was just, this has to happen, this transfer has to happen. So that's my main memories of him at Celeste.
0: Yeah, Joe, I think Chad knocked you on the head there with the, the cup fun. I think that's when everybody on a sort of more national scale became aware of him, right? Came off the bench um, to get the equaliser Palace, put them 3-2 up before eventually it obviously was 3-3 three, three, and then the replay that Man United won. Was that the first time he came into your consciousness as well?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, it's just a really interesting story. The fact that Chaz said there, you know, his connection with with the fans and connection with everybody else. And I think you do see that happen quite a lot, don't you, with players who, I mean, 22 isn't ancient. And and I, I think I'd had it in my head that he was sort of a lot older than that, really. But I, I think the fact that when you've had something potentially pulled away from you, that then you get given, you're prepared to work hard and go on. And I think we still see that with Vardy at the moment, Deli Alley a little bit to an extent when he first went to Spurs, maybe he'll get that back now, Mourinho's there, but yeah, going back to what you said about Mark Bright, I mean, he says that, uh, of everybody he played with, Mark Bright was the most important one, Mm -hmm. because he just learned so much and everything that he needed just when he was coming in and essentially, you know, starting from four or five years behind, said he was just, I'm reading the quote now, he was invaluable for my development. Mm -hmm. So there you go, but yeah, yeah, definitely around that time, but, I was going to say something to, to Chaz there. So, you're saying that he always... You know, like, there was always, I think, an inevitability that uh, Mourinho was going to go to Manchester United, even though we all saw how that fell out. Did you always feel that there was that inevitability that Wright would end up with Arsenal?
2: Yes and no. Uh, yes, for kind of the reasons I said, like, you know, the Rocast connection and just that he felt like an Arsenal player. But no, because we had George Graham at the time. And... You know, George Graham didn't like buying strikers. It was almost like the opposite of Arsene Wenger. Arsene Wenger doesn't like, did, didn't like, God, didn't like um, buying. Still in love players. his name. Still in love. Yeah, I, I've not moved really on. <laughs> no. they were, they were. He didn't like buying defensive players, and you know, a, George Graham obviously preferred to buy centre backs and uh, defensive midfielders and stuff. So, the thing that I felt stood in the way was George Graham so when I used to imagine it happening I used to imagine that one day we wouldn't have George Graham and and then we'd go and get Ian Wright as it turned out we got him before George Graham went. Mm. So in all he
0: scored 117 goals in 253 games and 24 sub appearances for the Eagles uh, making in the club's Record post war goal scorer. Uh, the best, best season he scored 24 goals uh, in 33 games as they got promoted from the second division to the first division at the time before the FA Cup final. And then in September 1991, Wright signed for Arsenal for 2.5 million, which at the time was a club record fee. So obviously, Chaz, it did happen. Uh, what are your feelings at the time? I mean, Arsenal had obviously Alan Smith. It was quite a different type of striker to go for, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean the previous season we'd won the the title. We had Alan Smith, uh Kevin Campbell, uh Paul Merson. So we had three, you know, potential uh strikers there. Um, you know, for him to choose from. I think we stirred Andy Cole at the time, I'm not entirely sure. But it was a big shock for all Arsenal fans. It was like the one position that we felt perhaps we didn't need someone in. But we were really, really excited. My theory, for what it's worth, is, is that it was more of a David Dean signing than a George Graham signing, in the same way that Dennis Burkamp was more, was a David Dean signing rather than a Bruce Rioch signing. Because whenever you read about it or watch documentaries or read interviews, as I do obsessively because I love Ian Wright, it, it, it always feels like David Dean was completely on top of that. And in fact, I think he ended up ringing up George Graham, who was out playing golf or something, and sort of saying, oh, by the way, we, you know, we have signed Ian Wright sort of thing. So, yeah, was very, very excited, um, very surprised that um, we got him, and I just knew that he'd fit in. I didn't have that, those sort of nerves. When Burkamp signed another big signing, I thought, oh, what if it doesn't work out? When Urzel signed, I was like, well, what if it doesn't work out? But with Ian Wright, I just, I knew it would.
0: Mm-hmm. I did too. I mean, I remember it happening. I remember that debut uh, against Leicester in the League Cup, which he scored. Uh, I remember him coming on and and scoring the goal and thinking, oh, they've signed a a good player here. But I was not never sure, I don't know about you, Joe, about the mix of, because George Graham, you know, straight talking, boring, boring Arsenal. Ian Wright already had this kind of bubbly reputation, colourful character, you know. What, what, What were your feelings on the signing? Do you remember it
1: happening? We've talked about this quite a lot, though. There's this, you know, this impression that george graham was this insane disciplinarian and Chaz will be able to talk to me more on this but that is possibly that era of arsenal is possibly the most (laughs) ill-disciplined side in terms of players in the history of the the first division stroke premier league because you had tony adams going to jail merson's full of coke and booze and gambling whatever else he was doing um ian wright was a was a good boy compared to them you know there was there was an awful lot of sort of insanity going on around Arsenal. I think it's certainly under George Grayman until he until he was replaced in whatever it was. Was it 94? Mm. Uh, uh, so, yeah, so I, I, I kind of, in that respect, I think I think the sort of boring, boring Arsenal, 1-0, the Arsenal and all that, it, it's kind of, I think it's a bit of a misremembrance, really, of the kind of, it, there's this impression that they were just staffed by, you know, this back five and then Ian Wright and, and nobody else. It, it's always kind of quite peculiar, they were, they were always a threat, you know, and I speak as a Borough fan who was forever getting battered by Arsenal, so, you know, it there was, there was always something to dread when Arsenal came to visit.
0: Mm, he was, he was definitely uh, uh, something more in it than we, we ever to say about George Graham and, well, with the stories galore of that era of team as well. Um, he'd scored a hat-trick on his league debut against oh, it was Southampton. Did Burkham mm. score on his debut as well? No, it wasn't his debut. His first goal was Anne Henry, Were they all against Southampton? Oh, over Mars.
2: Yeah, there, there's there's a whole list of them.
1: Yeah, against Southampton. Yeah, it's weird. Oh, poor old Southampton. Um, and, and I think like, it was Burkham's I think Burkham's debut was against us. Yeah, he didn't. Yeah, score his for like debut 10 goal. I yeah. saying? Yeah, yeah. Because I remember Stuart Pearce. Yeah, uh, it was. I think it was Barmby's debut for us as well, yeah. and he scored. Yeah, the more memorable debut of the day, Nick Barmby. Oh, <laughs> obviously, yeah. Ian Wright got the equaliser in that
0: game. Well, there you go, bringing it back. I like that. He scored 29 league goals that season, top scorer in the first division. And in those early years, Jazz under George Graham, I mean, you won the Cup double and then just after the, the Cup Winners' Cup as well. Never quite got to the league title under uh, George Graham and Ian Wright. What, you know, had his partnership with Kevin Gable? How do you assess the early years of Ian Wright under the George Graham era?
2: Well, we very quickly became um, Ian Wright FC and we, all, we actually used to chant that. Um, We used to chant the, you know, you normally chant, and it's Arsenal, Arsenal FC, by far the greatest team. Sometimes the way matches we chant, and it's Ian Wright, Ian Wright FC, because the play very quickly became so focused around him, which was sort of the best thing and the worst thing. It was the best thing because he very, very rarely let you down. You knew once he got clear on goal and the goalkeeper would come, you know, running out, Ian Wright's going to score now. I, I even remember a few of his goals celebrated before he kicked it. Literally jumping up and down with my back to the pitch <laughs> type celebrating because I just knew he'd do it. So in that way, it was the best thing. Obviously, if you want to, and if you want to win cups, that's great. Great player for, uh, and a great style of uh, team for a, a cup run, uh, as was shown in, domestically and in Europe. But um, in terms of challenging for the league, which we'd won in 89 and 91, you know, we then went seven years without... Uh, winning and even, in fact, probably challenging for the league. We were, in some of those seasons, we were actually flirting with mid-table in sort of Easter time. Um, so it was just one of those things. It was like a short-term or a long-term thing. If you thought about it in the long-term, you'd think, I don't know if this Ian Wright thing's going to work. But if you thought about it in the short-term, you're like, Ian Wright is the best thing that's ever happened in the, in the history of the human race <laughs> because he just always, always scored the goals. I just remember his celebrations. I just loved his celebrations, you know, his various dance moves and uh, the frankly inflammatory celebrations he'd often do when we are away from home. And if I was there, I'd always think, "Yeah, cheers, mate!" You know, we've got to walk to the station now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Um, it's the arrogance, so... isn't it, of his celebrations? It's like I was, yes. you can almost compare it to a little bit like how Prince Nazim. When you're that good. You're all right to be that arrogant, and Ian Wright at that time, essentially on his own as a striker, was that bloody good, wasn't he?
2: That's right. He was. He was. You know, he, and, and because he didn't really do it for England uh, to the same degree, that's why that's sort of got forgotten. That nowadays he's just seen as this sort of like you know cuddly sort of funny pundit, and I think people know that he obviously had a good career with Arsenal, but people forget quite how good it was because he never went on to become an England style. So therefore it's easy to forget. And also cause so much has happened at Arsenal since he left. I mean, obviously he left Arsenal a long time ago, but a uh, hundred million different things happened with such a, a drama club, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just remember, yeah, in terms of why I sort of fell in love with him as a player all the more, I mean, there were things like, I remember once I had a season ticket down to the clock end in, um, in the East stand at Highbury. And I remember once against Spurs, someone threw a, um, a, court, a sort of quarter bottle of whiskey bottle at him as he was waiting for a corner. And obviously, you know, everyone, including most of the Spurs fans probably was, you know, absolutely horrified by this. And I remain horrified by it. However, I have been told by several independent different Spurs fans who are in that end, that what he did was he had his arm, his hand on the goalpost, you know, because he was waiting on the near post. Mm. And apparently he was just very subtly just moving his wrist, shall we say, up and down the goalpost in front of the massed (laughs) Spurs fans, which even that does not justify throwing obviously, a glass bottle at somebody. But it was those little things like that that I just loved because you don't get that from many players. You don't get this uh, outrageous attitude from many players. And it was always drama around them. I mean, in the Cup Winners' Cup semi-final in 1994, Against PSG, this was the the year where we got through and beat Palmer ultimately. He missed that final because he picked up a second booking in the semi final against PSG. Not a second booking on the night, but a second booking in the competition. Jen ruled him out, and so for about fifteen minutes he was running around the pitch with tears in his eyes, and we were all chanting, you know, Ian, right, 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 trying to sort of get him back on course. And you know, he, he. Some people would say that that was, you know, that he should have just swallowed it and you know, just got on, with the, got on with the match. But the fact that he wore his heart on his sleeve and that he had such a huge heart, um, often his heart overtook his head. But, you know, I loved all of that about him. Um, honestly, I, mean, I, could, I could just go on all day, but I mean, it just felt like after a while that all the play went through him. And mm-hmm. this was a problem for us in terms of challenging for the league because you can't do that. And players like Kevin Campbell and Alan Smith, they're both kind of diplomatic nice guys particularly alan smith but i bet you know i mean i'd love to have about eight pints with them and then ask them what they thought of ian right because i bet there's mixed feelings there because he he did kind of send their careers most diving
0: yeah he did so from outside Joe. i mean do, do you think we've we've lost or we've kicked that type of footballer out of the game that kind of wears his heart on his sleeve loves to wind up the opposition. Do you think we're all too a bit, oh, no, oh, no, too conformed in 2019? I think
1: we've, we've got the, the odd one, haven't we? But I, I sort of think a lot of that will be media trained out of people, won't yeah, it? Yeah. More than anything. Uh, because people are always thinking about money opportunities, media opportunities etc 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 and I think what you do actually want to see is people who are gobby who care. I mean, that's that's what I mean. You saw the West Ham were getting criticised the other day for the game against Tottenham, and the only one that came out with any praise whatsoever is Mark Noble and on oh, and Declan Rice as well, who were running around, you know, just like trying to put out fires all over the place and showed that they're actually actually care. And I think I think we do sort of we want more of that, really, don't we? I think. People who people who care and people who um, and people who, who do you know wear the heart on the sleeve and go out and are emotional and yeah you know how many players care as much as us really
0: yeah I think you know him coming into football late made him feel more like somebody you know 22 doesn't sound that late but especially in modern days very very late it made him feel more relatable even in that time I mean I remember I was growing up with two two, my two best friends at the time were Arsenal fans so I naturally just didn't like Arsenal because I wanted to just have this rivalry for my friends and when they won the cup double in 93 was I was like and it was Ian Wright who always but you always go to the best player you don't want you you don't like him the most because he's so good and he was so good at the time, and he was keeping Les Ferdinand at the England squad as well, which always used to get my goat. So, but he mm. was he was that good, and he, the goals he scored, Which we'll, we'll talk about our favourite goals a bit later on. And you know, he scored in the FA Cup final uh, against Sheffield Wednesday in the replay. He was always a man for the big occasion as well. But I think, as Chaz said, you know, when you had guys like no no disrespect to David Hilliers and the Ian Incelles and a, a team kind of in transition under George Graham, I just mm. don't I don't think. The, he had the backing and they became as you say in right fc but as a striker on his loan i think chad as well he could score all types of goals i think it's fair to say like he could be a box-to-box player but then there were those moments i'm thinking of the goals against yeovil that famous goal against everton where he kind of lifted it up and over yeah he, he was he yeah. could score all different kinds of goals couldn't he yeah he could get
2: the, the tap-ins uh he could head the ball well um one on ones, he was good at. Like you said, they were, they were the the long chips. Um, I mean, possibly his heyday was actually the end of the 1991-92 season, his first season, where we were just um, we were just sticking so many goals past teams uh, before George Graham sort of started dropping Lindar <laughs> in the following season. Like We can't have any of this. But um, yeah, I remember, and you know, I you know I love that. Um, I mean, I know this is a nineties retro podcast, so I'm allowed to get nostalgic about. Yeah, you know, I loved the Bruce Banana kit as well. Of course. Was part of that. You know, I actually genuinely loved it. Not even ironically. I just thought it was a, a thing of beauty. And, um, did he make his debut in that kit that night? He would have done, yeah. Yeah, resting. I thought he yeah, did, that yeah. that would have yeah. been, I think, yeah. Uh, is... Although, weirdly, I don't think we'd normally wear our... I know, but it, I had so, this... But I think we did that. Yeah, I think Because they all did. ran in. And I remember um, it was Tony Adams plus every black player playing for Arsenal all mobbing in on Ian Wright. And then it, Tony Adams sort of stepped away. And I just remember just feeling enormous pride, you know, um, visceral pride at the fact that you know that that we had so many black players and that they were all, so like they all loved Ian Wright. And I I remember just thinking this is going to be so good because look at they already are, they already all love him, and he's already making an impact in that sense. And I mean, it might sound weird to younger listeners now hearing someone say, "Oh, I felt pride because we had." so many black players, but, you know, in the early 90s, racism on the in the stands and stuff was still a thing, and so to see Thomas and Rowcastle and Campbell and Wright and all this just so um, strong and proud as a unit, it meant a lot to me.
0: I think, I've got this in my notes, and I think it's fair to say that a reason why a lot of black people became Arsenal fans, it's because of it. it's a bit like John Barnes and Liverpool. He brought that culture to Arsenal because he became a, the main man and alerted a lot of people who thought at that time we were probably alienated from the game, as you say, because of the racism. But I thought I think he broke barriers a little bit with mm. that community because he became such a high-profile player for club, not in the end for country, which we'll go on to, but he did kind of help that whole generation, didn't he, at Highbury? Well, there's a whole new thing, you see, because you, you have your different
2: characters as, um, as society evolves on any issue. So if you look at the race issue, it's like, you know, we had to have people like John Barnes who were more, how can you put it, like, ambassadorial, yeah. a bit more dignified, maybe a bit more sort of soft power. And that was appropriate for then. I mean, John Barnes was an absolute hero then, um, you know, for what he did. And then it was time for someone to come through, like him. right? it was time for someone to come through. Don't I'm saying John Barnes was apologetic, and, and frankly, this is not for me to speak about anyway. But what I mean is, it was time for someone to come through with a bit more attitude yeah. and a bit more oomph, and to actually, quite literally, sometimes stick fingers up. I mean, there's a famous quote where he was said he was fined five thousand pounds for calling Coventry fans a bunch of wankers, and he said it was the best five grand he ever spent. <laughs> that was the sort of things that I love. And although he never explicitly said it, I think a lot of his uh, defiant celebrations in front of the wave hands might be because he would have heard or seen one thing from one person because there were there were still pockets of people. And I'm sure that in many of those cases where he seemingly you know, why is he so angry with the Wigan fans or something? Do you know what I mean? There's no there's no beef there. Perhaps it heard something and, and frankly good on him for just turning around and sticking the fingers
0: up at them. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely an attitude that uh, Ian Wright had, but any any attitude of Burrow at the time? Did you, do you think Barrow needed a play like him, Joel?
1: <laughs> <laughs> we could have done with any uh, strikers that would score 29 goals in the top division in a season, mate, yeah.
0: yeah. I just um, think absolutely. sometimes... No, I
1: don't, I don't think we've ever had that kind yeah. of arrogant chest putting, puffing out, because Robinelli wasn't. He, he was arrogant, yeah. but he wasn't arrogant on the pitch in that respect. Arrogant... Uh, Ravinelli was very, he would blame everybody else for his shortcomings, I suppose, which is not something you could ever throw at Ian Wright. Um, But no, we never ever had that that conversation. kind of um, that kind of player and that's I think that's another reason why Arsenal would have loved him because they, they knew what they had with that and because he wasn't arrogant in a way that you know obviously Cantona or, or other players like that were but just somebody who knew he was good and was going to grab his chance and away uh, you go, while you're talking about the subject of race by the way, um, Out of Our Skins the ITV documentary is back up on yeah. the ITV hub at the moment which Ian Wright talks about a lot of these issues and uh, I think they repeated it uh, about a week ago So so it should be there for a couple of months or so So if you want to go and hear what the man himself has to say about it all, of course,
0: it's there Yeah, no, no, that's a good watch that is, I watched it myself So yeah, that's very prevalent to to what we're talking about Um, Somebody who he didn't get on with though, um, Mr Ian Wright, especially at the uh, the time George Graham had gone, obviously due to the uh, allegations of money laundering and bungs and all that And Bruce Reok arrived uh, at Highbury which was kind of an interesting appointment he'd been he'd done quite well at Bolton obviously seen off um, Arsenal and Liverpool in Cup upsets the previous seasons but Wrighty and Rioch, and I've looked into this a lot this morning and uh, yeah they really didn't get on did they Chaz? <laughs> no they didn't it was interesting
2: what Joel was saying earlier about you know he was correctly sort of tying up the actual reality of George Graham um, you know who wasn't quite this disciplinarian and sort of ball with two o's um that
1: he was said to be but perhaps reoc actually was that person um he He definitely was i mean obviously reoc was at middlesbrough for a long 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 time and he was a very very harsh disciplinary and everything had to be letter of the law you know cut properly done right you're in on time it was it it, it was talking to the lads and 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 all of of that generation of middlesbrough fans will tell you that he was very much the boss he was in charge and nobody was pulling any nonsense
2: yeah, I think he told uh, Glenn Helder like to cut his hair and stuff like that, you know, these little things. So therefore, it's something like Glenn Helder's hair, although it was a bit weird. I, I thought he was just trying to look like Kate Hoey, but that's another story. But um he if he's not gonna <laughs> like um Glenn Helder's hair, he's not gonna like him right. And from what I understand, he was saying things like in training, oh well, you see what John John McGinley would have done there is and then sort of showed a different way of finishing. And obviously this was red rag to a ball to Ian Wright, but I think that he had that effect on most of, the, most of the team, to be honest, but inevitably, Ian Wright is like everyone else in a way, but more so, <laughs> and,
1: um, so is he there, was gonna- Is there on. a comparison to be made with Ruth Hullett and Shearer at Newcastle in the fact that the manager has tried to go against the beloved player and other people have stepped in and said, and made a clear choice, the striker over the manager?
2: Yeah, it was it was one of those moments. People always say no player is bigger than the club, but of course, some players are bigger than the club sometimes. And perhaps in a way, that's the best thing we can say of Ian Wright because here we are in his story. You know, this is months before Ber- uh, Wenger came, months before everything changed. At that point, Ian Wright was possibly more important to Arsenal than any player was individually during the Wenger era. Because even when you look at Henry and Bergkamp, are there? At their peak, there were lots of other players who were also really, really big. Whereas at that point, Ian Wright was, well, possibly Amber, Campbell who just arrived, were, was, the, was, was bigger than the club. So therefore, when he went to David Dean and just said, I'm not happy with this. I mean, smart guy, go to the guy who hadn't wanted Rio to come in in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just basically just said, it's a club or me, it's uh, the boss or me. And so at that stage, it was, uh, it was the boss who had to
1: go. There's not um, many players who could take that gamble, is there? So that's got to be somebody who understands his own worth at the club, um, yeah. and, and understands his relationship with the fans, understands his relationship with the chairman and the board, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, and, it, and it's a very, it is a similar situation to, to that at Newcastle. Whereas if you go against Shearer, there's only going to be one winner, and it sort of feels like he was exactly the same in that respect.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he was. I mean, in that comparison with John McGinley, I read that as well. I mean, I mean come on. John McGinley was a decent striker, but that's, you can tell that would definitely have, uh, have put his nose out of joint. And apparently, he, handed in, he wanted to hand in the transfer request as well. So it was always a good end in tears for Bruce Brioch. I mean, as a fan, Chaz, what? not putting that aside, what did you think of Bruce Brioch's style of football at the time of the club? Did he all feel like he needed
1: to move on? Hold on. I think we could answer this by the fact that Chaz calls the current... <laughs> uh, Arsenal manager what do you call him Chaz? Bruce Riocca <laughs> <Whey! laughs>
2: and I mean, enemy <laughs> depending on how angry I am
0: but there was a, an argument that their, their form had improved under Rioch, but, but was it all seen by the fans at the time that he wasn't the right man?
2: yeah I mean I actually think now I've been harsh I thought I was being harsh on um, on Emery by calling him Bruce I think I was now actually looking back probably being harsh on Bruce Riocca by comparing him to uh, but no, I think that there was a certain amount of optimism. Certainly Burkamp and Platt coming in had cheered us all right up. And again, it's easy to forget how bad things had been. I mean, in the previous season, we'd, there'd been a match against Ipswich in late March, early April, where if we lost, I think we were actually going into the relegation zone or just behind it. Um, it's like
1: 12 or something.
2: Now, yeah. yeah. And then we'd had that traumatic, naive thing. We'd have the mm-hmm. funds. We'd had all sorts. You know, Tony Adams as, um you know, or oh, Paul Merson at that point, it was, yeah. was the, the, the thing at the moment. And then Adams, yeah, in Rioch's first season, it was Adams. I remember Rioch saying, I feel like Marge Proops here. I mean,
3: <laughs> you know,
2: and so, yeah, no, I think there was a good feeling around Rioch. I don't think anybody felt like he was the one, but it was definitely a good feeling um, around him. And I don't think anybody was gutted when he went, but I don't think anybody looks back on him uh, with any any distaste or anything.
1: Was it an attempt to... Basically, get a carbon copy of George Graham, or or the perception of George Graham. Then you know, like you see that that quite a lot where people just go, "Yeah, we want to, we want to repeat these years, we want to repeat that." I think we talked about, uh, or I talked about actually in an article somewhere, the fact that Tottenham had decided to go and get Christian Gross because he seemed like a copy of Arsene Wenger. Is is there a, was there a degree of that? Do you think under, with Rio?
2: Yeah, I think that they felt that they wanted to go down a more sort of entertaining football route because we've become more and more boring and defensive in georgia's later years uh, but then they also sort of felt like they needed somebody who was a disciplinarian as well and so i can sort of see why they went for him but equally david dean who was the sort of the the life force behind everything that went on in the club at the time he wanted Wenger at that point he'd wanted Wenger to come in when real came in so perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps when he was told, no, he can't come in, it's, it's plausible that he just stepped away from the process and just said, well, I, do, I think Wenger was the right man and perhaps that's why we ended up with Rio I mean, I remember them coming humiliating us in the cup and, you know, you macketeer and all of these players, yeah. they were, Bolton were really, like, really exciting and promising at the time and so I can see why they thought that he was this up-and-coming thing, but... um. My biggest memory of him was him having a, a virtual punch-up with Keegan and uh, McDermott on the touchline once. That, and if that's your best memory of somebody, that, I suppose that tells its own story.
1: I quite like
2: that. <laughs> well, yeah. We had, yeah, it was
0: great We had that weird thing With him at QPR the, After we left Arsenal Because we had Stuart Houston As manager <laughs> And he was assistant Which I don't know If ever quite worked Because it was kind of like Well, it was the other way Around before Was people's noses Out of joint And I mean He never really did Anything for Stuart Houston Anyway Didn't see him again Didn't we after that Really in football But yeah It, yeah. it wasn't Really well-liked uh, Loftus Road, if, if what, I, what I remember as well. But that whole regime seemed to be a bit upside down and, and, and not, not nonsensical, to be honest. Um, right, we're going to talk uh, sort of the second half of his kind of the new dawn of Ian right under Arsene Wenger uh, after our short interview. Well, it's a longer than short. It's a, it's a good interview, though. Uh, we're switching the legioncies slightly. Uh, somebody who played for both sides of North London, but all across the capital. But mainly in the 90s, he played for West Ham, Chelsea, Millwall. I do talk to him about Cube as well. Look, talking about his new book, which is out this Christmas, here's me speaking earlier this month to the one and only Clive Allen. Enjoy.
1: Hey, this is Alexi Lawless, and you're listening to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. Remember, keep it 90s. <laughs>
0: Joining me on the line now, a real pleasure to talk to uh, somebody who's got a brand new book out that he's going to tell us about. Uh, one of the most famous families in football, Mr Clive Allen. Thank you very much for joining the show.
3: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Uh, yeah, good to talk to you. Now, let's, let's talk about the book, uh, nicely titled up front as well. Um, why have you chosen uh, now to, to tell the story of your of your footballing career?
3: Well, I just think, um, obviously, my life's it been a way of life for me, football, and the opportunity to just tell all the uh, all the stories from my playing days, being born into it, my playing days and then through to, obviously, media now and, and other things that happen at the end of my career. So, just encompassing, encompassing everything that's happened, really. Mm, no, it's definitely a top read. I'm sure it'll be a top of um, many people's Christmas lists
0: um, come the next month. Um, we are a 90s football podcast, of course, but... As a QPR fan myself, it'd be remiss of me to be a little bit cheeky and ask a bit selfish. Ask you about those early days at Rangers in the 80s, where we reached the FA Cup final, Um, some of your best days as a footballer, I imagine.
3: Yeah, I think um, as I say in the book, I was um, I was born into a into a footballing family. My dad, obviously, is a successful yeah. player. My grandfather took me to watch my first football at QPR as a six-year-old, when my dad was playing, and then player manager. So QPR, I have a very soft spot for Queens Park Rangers. I, I always say that you know a lot of my football education was gained at at Queens Park Rangers uh, through through the academy there and then into the first team. And um, yeah, it was wonderful times, great memories. Mm. I mean, obviously the
0: only time Rangers have ever reached the FA Cup final. How special was that? run? Of course, you got you famous, you got the goal in the semi-final.
3: How how special was that moment and that team under Terry Venables? Oh, it was an amazing time. I think we had a, we had a fabulous team. Obviously, Terry was in charge. Um, we were underdogs in the semi-final against a very, very strong West Brom side and um, managed to, to win at Highbury to, to go to Wembley and play Spurs in the uh, 82 final. Um, great times for the club. In the league as well, we were very strong. Um, got promotion um, up to the top flight the following season. So it was a really, really good period for the football club. Indeed. Let's fast forward um, to the nineties. Then uh, at the start
0: of the decade, you were at Manchester City. Um, for, the, for our younger listeners, I mean, a very different club to the Man City we remember now. What do you remember about your time uh, as it was then at Main Road?
3: Yeah, I had a great time at Main Road. It was um, obviously it was the the club of Manchester, the people's club in Manchester. I came back from France. I'd left Spurs, went to France for a year, came back to England, and had the opportunity to go to to Manchester City. Um, obviously it wasn't a club with the finances it, it has now It had a very very good young side I was towards the end of my career then so I, I think I was added to that squad as a, a little bit of experience and um, you know there was a lot of emerging young talent at that time that just got promotion into the top flight um, and I really in, enjoyed my years in Manchester mm. Did you see your role at that point obviously as you said coming towards the end of the career to help the youngsters because then
0: you went on to Chelsea and West Ham obviously was that kind of as you were seeing to, to add what you could but also pass your knowledge on to kind of the next generation in and around the teams?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I was, uh, I was 30 when I came back from France. I'd obviously had uh, all my football had been in, in England until I'd gone to France and then returning back to England to go to Manchester. Um, so that was a, a really big new challenge for me, allied with, uh, with a young team. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that and um, it was something that uh, at that stage of my career was, was just perfect for me. It's interesting because you're somebody who obviously played
0: in the eighties and then in the beginning of kind of the nineties where we say the decade completely changed with the Premier League and stuff. I mean, did you see that change very early on in those Premier League years?
3: Uh, no, I, I I actually played five Premier League games for for West Ham United, scoring two goals. So I have played and I have scored in the Premier League. I know I know I'm a dinosaur now, but uh, <laughs> yeah, they were they were the the infancy days. I don't think anyone even then in the, in the I would say in the initial. Uh, three or four or five years of the of the uh, Premier League could envisage that it would grow to the product that we now see. It's uh, obviously a global game. Um, you know, it, it, its attraction is, is uh, around the world. It's is quite incredible. Um, and it's such a great product. And I think that um, it just uh, it just is a great advert for, for English football uh, and what it means to the people, the fans, the passion that I think the rest of the world now look in on and, and thoroughly enjoy. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that uh, West Ham there and scored in the Premier League, but you
0: you helped them obviously get promoted as well, scoring um, an important goal against Cambridge on, that secured as well. Did you enjoy that promotion campaign as well? Slightly different towards the end of career, uh, and achievement. Yeah, it,
3: it was quite incredible because obviously West Ham was a club that you know everybody thought should be in the Premier League, and I, I was I was really happy to be part of the of the team you know led by Billy Bonds and coached by Harry Redknapp that uh, that gained promotion um, in in uh, in the early 90s. So that was that was something towards the end of my career that, that I'll never forget, you know, that, that particular day, first time even at that stage of my career that I'd experienced, um, you know, the possibility of going into playoffs if we hadn't made it automatically. And, you know, the tension and the drama at the end of the season on the last day was, was quite something. Mm. You bounced around, obviously, London, you're famous for that, especially
0: at the end of your career with Chelsea, West Ham and Millwall. Was that always intentional or was it just happened to,
3: to end up like that? No, it was um, you know the law of supply and demand. Really, I think um, I'd, I'd always um, scored goals wherever I played. I think that um, my dad always told me in my very early days, if you score goals, there'll always be someone who would be looking at you and would take a chance on you. And I think that was the case. I just you know wanted to to play and score for forever. I was um, I was working for, and that was something that you know a, a, really an attitude of mind I had all the way through my career. Mm.
0: One of the things I really want to ask you, and I remember it very vividly, was your time with the London Monarchs at the end of your footballing career. You switched allegiances to to American football. What was that like? How
3: did it even sort of come about? And, and that experience for you? Well, it was quite amazing because um, I was I was working at Sky, and Sky um, had just launched Soc- Soccer Saturday, so that was the primary program that I was working on at that time. And Sky were covering NFL Europe, which was. Uh, a concept where players from America came to Europe for the summer, um, played at, at, at European-based teams, and one of which was the London Monarchs. They wanted a national kicker in each team. And um, Oliver Luck, who was then the president of World League, Andrew Luck's father, big quarterback in his day, Oliver, and his son, Andrew Luck, a big player who's only just retired himself, um, asked me if I'd be interested in kicking for the Monarchs. Um, it was a completely different um, skill set um i had to I had to go to kicking camp train and hone my um skills kicking in american football but um it was just something it was just a, an amazing opportunity. I was two years finished in my soccer career, and the chance to play a professional sport was was something very special so um, yeah, really, really fantastic experience it was. Mm-hmm. Is it something you still keep up with now, the NFL, or is, was it something you're with? Yeah, your I do. That... I do watch it. I do watch. Uh, I do still uh, keep across the the NFL. I had the, I had the pleasure of meeting Josh Lambeau from the mm. uh, Jags um, Friday before their game at Wembley yesterday, and um, you know it was it was good to to talk to him. He, he was a he's a great follower of, of football. Goalkeeper in his time played for the the US under-17s uh, and 19s side. So um had a chance to speak, meet and speak to him on Friday, which was really interesting. And he, uh, he's been a fantastic uh, kicker for the Jags this year.
0: Would it be something you'd advise um, other footballers? Because, you know, I, I know you talked about Harry Kane because he's a big NFL fan doing it when he retires. Is it something that they haven't
3: explored that maybe more people should in the future? Yeah, I, I think um, it was very interesting that, that they felt that soccer players could adapt um, better because I, I, you know, uh, immediately thought that it would be for rugby kickers, yeah. but rugby rugby kickers have that ball set and it's 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 perfect and still. Um, the American football when it's snapped back and set for you to kick, sometimes it's in the it's in the holder's hands. It's not actually set perfectly, and you have to adjust and kick it um, in a, in a similar way. They said that you do as a as a soccer player in the eighteen yard box, and I have to say once I once I actually got involved and experienced it, I could see. Um, why they they like soccer players kicking kicking the American football? Was there many eyebrow
0: brows by your fellow professionals and friends having the game? Were they surprised or did they give you stick for for, for crossing the border into to NFL? No, no,
3: they were they they were quite amazed and um, obviously they they wanted to know exactly what it was all about and whether it was easy or difficult and um, it, it certainly it certainly wasn't a, a, as easy as those boys make it look. Um, it's uh, it's very technical. I think it was a it was a great insight for me as well with my coaching because um, the, the the specialized um, skill sets for individual players in American football that I think certainly is something we're starting to see now um, with, with footballers that they you know especially free kick takers penalty takers that they uh, they really have to hone their skills to make sure that
0: they do the job well. Finally, we always ask um, guys on the line. Um, question of the best players they played against and the best players they played with in their
3: time. Um, Who makes the top of Clive Allen's list in those categories? Well, I was very fortunate to play play with some wonderful players. For me as a striker, one of the best players I played with was Glenn Hoddle, Mm -hmm. purely because he was the best passer of the ball. Um, I was very fortunate to play with Diego Maradona um, in a testimonial game that was played at White Hart Lane where Glenn Hoddle and um Maradona played in the same team and that was that was quite something what an experience that was um so i'd have to say that uh, you know Gago was one of the one of one of the best players along with glenn that i have played with um playing against players um i i have to say that platini was was quite amazing we played um in a football league against the rest of the world at uh, at Wembley and and he was quite something uh, on that day Well,
0: thank you very much, Clive. Good luck with the book. Um, I'm sure it will be uh, on many Christmas, under the Million Christmas trees this this Christmas. Thanks very much.
3: Great. Thank Thank you. you. Hi, this is Elton Wellesby, and you're listening to Alive and Kicking, the outstanding 90s football podcast.
0: Clive Allen there, thank you very much. And yeah, if you're a fan of him or like a good autobiography, make sure you put that on your Christmas
1: list. I'm a fan of the London Monarchs.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know, we were. It's interesting looking at the London Monarchs. I went to see them, as I said to Clive there. I went to see the London Monarchs a couple of times. I had a friend who was really into that whole... European Europe. whatever it was at the time and they used to play at White Hart Lane and stuff very odd very odd Barcelona Dragons I think they were called I went to see them against something like that but interesting to hear from Clive there right we're still on you right 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 on this episode and we're talking kind of like the ne- the new dawn of Ian right because Arsene Wenger arrived at Ivory in September 1996 famously Arsene who, uh, and I, th- I think it's fair to say Chaz at the time we weren't really sure what we mean for right here because he was 33 at the time wenger would come in with his new philosophy he already had but he bought in you know the vieras the petites but suddenly it was kind of like this these two opposite elements met and came from memorable memorable period especially the, the double winning season wasn't it
2: yeah if you, the first sights of and the first interviews and press conferences yeah he didn't smack of somebody who was going to love uh, effervescent character like Ian Wright. But, um, he, yeah, he gave him a, a kind of like a second wind, yeah. like he did with a lot of the team. Um, and, I mean, the first thing that came up, obviously, was the, uh, the club record goal scorer thing, which was actually in the second season of yeah. Um But, yeah, I remember the matches leading up to when he did it against uh, Bolton. Um, I remember the matches leading up to it incredibly frustrating because
1: it take forever. It did, yeah. Because it must have been mentioned like yeah. every week for about six weeks on match of the day that he was closing in on Cliff and He was closing in on Cliff Bastin, cl- and it just took. Like, it, I, well, do we know what the gap was between the what was it, 184th and 185th goal? I don't, but it felt like we going so to look it up much. now. You carry yeah, on talking yeah. up. Look well, up. I
2: remember uh, North London Derby a few, a few weeks before he we did it, um, at the end of August '97, and I just remember he missed so many chances. There was one in particular when um, I was in the North Bank behind the goal and when he got clear still on goal, and it was just one of those ones where you put your house on with the in-right scoring and he chipped it over the bar. I remember literally just in sheer anger, just spontaneously thumping the bloke next to me. I was just so angry, look looked really thumping him quite hard and uh, luckily getting away with it um, and you could feel the weight on everyone and it was getting everyone down and you, you got to that point where as if things weren't played through him enough, as I said earlier at this stage, everything was getting played through him because everybody just wanted him to get this uh, record broken and so we could just, you know, partly for him because everyone loved him but also so we could sort of get on with the season uh, so when he did do it and I was there that and even then typically Ian right, you know, he celebrated it early, he sort of yeah, slightly, sort of mucked yeah, the yeah. moment up. But that's what makes <laughs> him so endearing. And um yeah, I mean the chance of Ian right, right right after he'd done that, um after he'd got the the record were just unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable, the the love for the guy. Um
0: Yeah. Do you think Wenger just I think maybe one of his best strokes was just let Ian Wright be in right, then try and make him Possibly in the mould that he would have done if he'd gone in there straight away as a as a raw talent, but he just let him be in right, let Burkamp do his thing, make that partnership, and then that's why those two work so well together. Yeah, and I think as you know,
2: there's a there's a bit of a Mark Bright thing going on with Dennis Burkamp. That's not a sentence that's spoken very early. Very often, <laughs> somewhere somewhere. Mark Bright
0: has <laughs> got a big grin on his face right now. Yeah,
2: yeah. in terms of the personality, um, you know, he, he the the personality that you know complements complementing personalities between Bright and Wright were a little bit like that with Burkamp and Wright um I remember um you know seeing them interviewed on Match of the Day a few weeks after they'd sort of started playing together and they were like a comedy double act you know because Dennis you know who, as you know from previous episodes I worked with for a couple of years mm. his sense of humor was so dry and actually so English um whereas Ian Wright is not dry and reserved and so I think they sort of They worked well together. I think from Dennis's point of view, he never said this to me directly, but it's reading between the lines. It seems to feel like he felt enormously exposed when he came to Arsenal because he was such a massive talent and and personality and brand compared to everyone else at the club. And Ian Wright's flamboyance and refusal to play second fiddle to anybody actually worked in Dennis's favour. It's like if an introvert walks into the room, they want an extrovert to be in there because then they can just stand in the background quietly. So I think that's partly why um, Dennis loved it, right? And if anyone hasn't watched it yet, I think it's on YouTube. There's a...
0: Uh, so it's brilliant. Uh, yeah, there's a
2: video of Wright going to see Dennis Bergkamp at his house, which is an amazing house, as you'd imagine, and they talk about the old days. So type in Dennis Bergkamp, Ian Wright, into YouTube and just have
0: fun. I love on that how Ian Wright just wants to hug him all the time. And and, <laughs> and at first, Dennis is quite reserved about it, knowing that the cameras are there. But it's like, Ian, I imagine I've only very briefly met Ian Wright, um, you know, being in that, being in, working for a football magazine, I kind of missed the era that he was actually playing. So I've interviewed him very briefly in a punditry role, but... I think it's safe to say what you get on screen with Ian right, is what you get regardless yeah. if maybe turned up a notch. so. But I think Burkham, like you say, there has got another side to him. So it's quite interesting to see that on film. Did you find that out, Joe? Have you done your research?
1: I did, yeah. Um, so, um, da, 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 da. right, so at the start of the 97-98 season, Ian you know, Wright, 174 goals. He had three goals in the opening two games of the season. That's against Leeds and Coventry. So he needed a goal. Then He went three games without a goal. Then there was an international break, so it was over a month, and then Bolton visited um, Arsenal on September the 13th, 1997. Um, Bolton took the lead, and then uh, Wright, um, Wright scored, obviously. It was a number 178, and then he, five minutes later, uh, Dennis Bergkamp made inroads into the Bolton defence. Patrick Vieira challenged for a loose ball, and with the keeper stranded, Wright had a tap-in from no more than five yards. All of his of all of these, 179 goals for Arsenal. It was probably the simplest. That's from Arsenal.com. Thank you. There you go. So there,
0: it wasn't nice. not, not as big a gap as you remember, but I, like you say, I do remember it going on for forever. Um, he'd spend uh, maybe another season at Arsenal um, before leaving in 1998. His last goal came at West Ham in the League Cup as well. So he dovetailed his Arsenal career in the same competition on the 6th of January in 1998. He scored 185 goals in 288 appearances uh, for the club. Was um, it just because? Um,
1: because uh, Nicholas Inelka was sort of exploding onto the scene. I mean, and he was 34
0: by that point, I think. Well, I think he's... Con- correct me if I'm wrong, Charles. Was his contract up? I believe he went on a free to West Ham.
1: Half a million quid. Yeah.
0: What, what
2: I what I do remember is, is that in the FA Cup final at the end of the 98 season when we beat Newcastle, um, I remember he was on the bench for that match and in the last sort of ten five ten minutes... All the Arsenal fans were chanting Ian Wright, Wright, Wright. They wanted him to get on, so he could actually have a appearance in the Cup Final, and you know, therefore, an natural appearance, sort of medal, sort of thing. And I remember on on the TV, you could actually see he was uh, Wright was sitting behind Wenger on the bench, and he was sort of mock pleading, playing to the cameras because he knew the cameras were there, mock pleading to let him on. And I think it's, I think I've even seen Wenger or someone say that the reason he didn't put him on was, I mean, he said. Wenger's reason was that we were 2-0 up. If he put him on, even with two minutes to go, we could go 2-1 and then we'd be chasing the game and the team would be unbalanced. Absolutely, yeah, talking out of his backside there. And he knows that he didn't put him on. I think it was his way of roughing him up before he went because he knew Wright wanted to stay. And I think that was his way of starting the exit there, as in, you know, your story is still gone. And certainly, you know, Anelka and the whole team ethos thing, he... He knew that in the double year, the reason why our league title bid took off, it was when Wright was injured. That's the, <laughs> the hard fact of
0: it. And like you say, Joel, the, the emergence of Nicholas Anelka, I think that was Wenger saying, you know, that's time to move on. He's got a case of trolling. Didn't Wenger do that with Keown on his last appearance? Or he needed an appearance for a medal or something? One. T- oh, okay,
2: I can tell the story quickly. I'm trying to do it quickly if you like. But basically it was... Um, yeah, it was the Invincibles era, uh, uh, invincible yes. season, and um, Keon needed to get on in the last match. Um, and then Ray Parler to wind Keown up, started, mm-hmm. who was also on the bench, started warming up and said to Keown, because oh, there was only one sub left, said to Keown, oh, the bosses said, I'm going on. Mm-hmm. Keon then ran down the, uh, to Wenger <laughs> and actually grabbed him around the neck and said, what the hell are you doing? Because he'd said that he'd put Keown on, but now Parlour was winding him up. And Keon comes flying in at Wenger, like, what, what do you think you're doing? And actually Pan put his hand around his neck. Um, and then later on, uh, Wenger was talking to Parler in the post-match celebrations and said, what was all that happened with Keon? And Parler told, Keon the story of, uh, told Wenger the story of how he wound Keon up. And apparently Wenger said, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard.
0: <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Classic trolling there from from Ray Parler. I mean, where do you rate... I mean, we talk about this at length and at nauseam about the strikers, and we'll talk about his international career in a minute, in that era. But where do you, as an outsider of Highbury like myself, where do you rate Ian Wright of that era in terms of top, top strikers?
1: Again, it's what we, it's what we say, isn't it? You know, he was unlucky that he came along in that era, and especially against Shearer. Um I, I was watching an interview with, with him as part of this, and I, I, Ian Wright said that, Euro 96 I think was his not being in the squad for Euro 96 was his biggest disappointment because he thought that he was flying and doing really well and and then he picked Robbie Fowler instead I think uh, Venables Yeah. so, yeah, and I think there's this kind of, we've alluded to this arrogance, but I don't think he was hated outside of, you know, no, uh, outside of Arsenal. You know, maybe down the road at Tottenham, you know, they didn't think much of him, but there still would have been a grudging admiration. Um, but, yeah, it rated him very, very highly. But, you know, obviously, Shearer was around, and as much as it pains me to say, Shearer was around.
0: Yeah, Shearer was around. His international career. So, he made his debut in 1990, February 91, under Graham Taylor uh, against Cameroon at Wembley. Um, only started 17 times and, and he used substitutes 16 matches across the, that decade. Um, do, Jazz, do you think it was a case of it was just too many good strikers? And, and I think what he suffered from was partnerships that he didn't, wasn't part of. So Euro 96, we had Shearer and Sheringham. Uh, Graham Taylor never seemed to rate him. He took Smith to Euro 92 instead of Wright. What, what do you think never clicked for Ian Wright at, at international level? I think that
2: Ian Wright's always at his best when... It- Everything is evolving around him when he's a, when he feels like he's if not the center of attention the center of the energy of the whatever the situation is that's when he becomes amazing I've seen him away from the pitch in person and stuff and he can be really really downcast and downbeat and sort of staring at the floor when you're in a, a meeting or something that, and it's not evolving around him the moment it starts to revolve around him he's just magical absolutely magical like watching a piece of art you know and so i suppose he stepped up to england he wasn't at Sellers park where he was you know a god he wasn't at Highbury where he was a god he was suddenly in a different situation and i expect that that probably uh played on his mind a bit but also you know in the arsenal era you know of the 90s you know there was a lot of arsenal england players English Arsenal players who never really did much uh, for England. Like, you know, think about Dixon and Bold and Winterburn. Yeah. Where they stand in the history of the 90s Premiership. You know, they're, they're up there with the very, very best defenders of that era. But they never really got, you know, that many caps. Uh, I don't know the stats, but they never got as many caps as you would have expected. Players who'd won that many trophies during the 90s. You've got someone like Dixon and Winterburn. I think they, they won league titles in three decades, and yet their England Caps
1: record is very small. Do you think that that is an anti-Arsenal bias? And I know I'm, you know, in terms of they were seen as being dour and uh, and everything, because really, is there any excuse for all of that back line not to play for England? You know, obviously, I'm not including Steve Morrow in that, but you, (laughs) you understand what I mean.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it might well be. I never really got that agitated, but a lot of Arsenal fans did say that and would agree with you. I never really thought about it that much, merely because I, I was a bit like Ferguson. Like, uh, I didn't want Arsenal players playing for England. I didn't want any Arsenal players playing for international teams. So I considered it a distraction <laughs> from the real business of football, which was Arsenal. So I was quite pleased when they never high I never did.
1: time I, once again there, Chaz. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the two abiding memories
0: I have of, of Ian Ryan in Englandshire is firstly the um, 98 Italian game in Rome where they drew 0 0 mm-hmm. and he, he was playing and he missed that chance but it didn't matter. He hit the post in there at the end and it didn't matter because. Right at the very end. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. Went, they went down the other end and Seaman made that save right at the death there but it could have gone all wrong and then his celebration at the end with Gaza and stuff and then he got injured and couldn't make the finals anyway under Glenn Hoddle. Uh, and then he played under, must have been Graham Taylor, in a game against San Marino and scored four goals. And him and Les Ferdinand played up front together. And as I said earlier, I had friends who were Arsenal fans at the time, well friends at the time, than I, uh, school friends I don't know anymore. But we loved it because it was like our two teams playing up front together. And they were brilliant because I think Ferdy got two and Wright got four. And I don't think they ever played that combination again because Alan Shearer was the number one. But that, th- those two memories really stand out from his international career. 33 caps. And nine goals which spans across the whole decade and, and a number of managers but quite never was never the man as you say uh for England before we go let's just quickly talk about because the best most fun thing and what started the reason we we're going to do this podcast on Ian Wright is is sort of outside of football You such a character and as you alluded to, to the top of the show Joel he did Friday nights all right which was a terrible <laughs> Friday night sort of chat show was
1: it I Well, it's, you're, you're talking about the era of tfi friday yes. aren't you? so this yeah. was kind of itv's attempt at doing that and and ian wright was probably looking ahead at what was going to come next I, I guess by by that point um but it certainly is a peculiar mangling of of lots of different sort of it, it, it's it, maybe probably more based on something like um the arsenio hall show in in america rather than anything but with Tier 5 Friday, very British, very London kind of uh, gimmicks, and Ian Wright sort of whooping it up a storm at every point. And uh, I think we said before we came on, or did, I don't know when we you said in the body of this, but showing, Lennox yeah. Lewis is his bodyguard yeah. and all these kind of gimmicky business going on. But yeah, there's a few clips up on YouTube. There doesn't appear to be much in the way of full episodes, probably fortunately. But um, I think yeah, there's remember. a bit of him viewing LB B, and he doesn't yeah. seem to realise that she's pregnant, even though she's clearly about <laughs> Thirteen months pregnant. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, it was. You know, but he's but he's got that thing of he's quite entertaining. And what it is is just a chat. You know, you can tell he's certainly not a polished broadcaster by any um, stretch of the imagination. But he's. I suppose he wasn't meant to be. He was probably more about vibe and cool. And, and the fact that they were looking for somebody who could bring them, I guess, a black audience. Yeah,
0: I remember him interviewing Caprice, and she was going out with, unbelievably, Tony Adams at the time, and there was that, <laughs> it was that fun I element. I forgot all about that. Yeah, <laughs> what happened there? And then I think Dion Dublin was on it once, and he played the sax.
1: Was he it, playing the saxophone? He wasn't talking about house prices. No,
0: or, or, <laughs> or inventing the dube either. He was playing the saxophone, and there was this kind of underlining joke about him and his other leg like right, type thing and yeah it was it was trying to it was a bit lowbrow a bit fun a bit laddie, wasn't it of that era but it was it was definitely fun um Chaz, as an ian wright fanatic though do you know the words and to do the right thing that's what i want to know um, i did buy it i
2: remember, I remember <laughs> it was the cd single i bought him on i bought it on and i think the front cover was like his tongue yes something. it yeah. was like a close-up on his mouth uh keep the peace. I remember there was like a mantra, if you've got nothing good to say, keep the peace at the end. But <laughs> my main memory of this off, off pitch sort of era was actually I went to a press launch uh, and this really tells us it tells the story of who I think he is and how lovely he is as a person. I went along to a press launch, press conference for um, his ITV show and uh, I think this was one of the first time I'd ever... Working for shoot at the time. I think it's one of the first things I got sent out to. So you can imagine from never really meeting players or going out and doing these things, I'm suddenly being sent out to.
1: A small group interview with the first thing you do is so impossibly nerve wracking. Yes, no yeah, who absolutely. Is anyway, yeah. and the fact that you've got you know your footballing hero there must be. I mean, later on it becomes, and I don't want to be blase where anybody's listening, but when you do this stuff a lot, you sort of, unless it becomes know. somebody really, really mega. But to start, sort of, essentially at the pinnacle of your heroism, right at the beginning, that must have been. You know, you must have been worrying that you're going to trip over your words and all sorts. Yeah, I I, I was scared I was literally going to wet myself or
2: something (laughs) when I went in. And I remember I had to introduce myself to various people. And in my nervousness, I just said to all of them in a row, oh, hi, I'm Chas from Shoe. Oh, hi, yeah, I'm Chas from Shoe. Even though they're all standing and sitting next to each other, oh, hi, yeah, I'm Chas from Shoe. Everyone had heard by this point. But I I saw it through, to to be fair to me. I saw it through about 11 people. And then somebody came into the room later and they said, oh, are you here from... Capital Radio or something, and Ian might said, No, this is Chaz from Shoot. He can't <laughs> stop telling the world that he's Chaz from Shoot. And then every time there was a little gap in the interview, he'd go, Chaz from Shoot, do you have a question? And he was just, Chaz from Shoot, Chaz from Shoot. And, t- and it just made me laugh a lot, and it made everyone laugh. and Looking back on it, I think that he probably saw me coming in petrified, saw me just do that. And I think that he genuinely, because there was nothing malicious about what he was doing, I think he was just putting me at ease and just thinking, this guy is terrified he's like sweating and he's nervous he's completely overawed i'm just going to take the piss of it so he calms down which is exactly what happened
1: brilliant that's, that's a, lovely that's, that's nice story, that's made me by yeah. the, the second interview i did i got i had to wait five hours for the person to come i'm not to say was for the person to come and um, interview and then they gave me three minutes of yes no answers oh. yeah yeah it's it's johnson be- sorry <laughs>
0: Boris yeah Boris Johnson. Johnson Yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> Let's not get political um, <laughs> He also uh, pre- Presented Top of the Pops In that era of course Ian Wright um, He That song actually I just realised Was written and produced By Chris Lowe The Pet Shop Boys
2: Yeah that's right Yeah that was amazing He's a big
1: Arsenal fan though Isn't he Chris Lowe
0: Which number yeah. 43 in the charts You've never seen that video Go on YouTube And Ian Wright's wearing This ridiculous hat in this kind of setting, it looks like a father side in a disco. It's all very odd, but very 90s. Um, he also did ads, obviously, for Chicken Tonight, which I lead to do at the top of the show, and was part of those brilliant Nike ads, the devil, good versus evil, the Hackney Marshes one. Brilliant. He was very much Nike's poster boy at the time, especially in this country. So, yeah, all good stuff um, outside the football. Uh, before we go, if we're just to sum up the, the career of Ian Wright with a couple of favourite moments from each. Uh, Chaz, we'll go to you last. Joe, what what do you what's your abiding memory over a goal or a moment? We haven't mentioned obviously his clash with Peter Schmeichel, famously never got on with him. What do you what do you take from Ian Wright in, in that decade? Yeah, I
1: was good to say, say the adverts and everything, but I do remember a goal against. Um, see, this might make Chaz happy. But a goal against Leeds United in I think ninety five, the one where uh, Burkham flicks the ball into Ian Wright's face. Have you seen? Yeah, you remember yeah. this one? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he, he flicks it up. Bang into his face, and then he just gathers his thoughts, get it, to, you know, get it to his feet, bangs it onto his right, uh, and a little chip over the defender and the ki- and the keeper into the far corner, and that's kind of one that I don't think gets mentioned particularly uh, very much, but just the fact that it hit him in the face first just <laughs> always makes me laugh and stands out for me. So that would be the, the kind of goal, but just the moment of just every just the run and the celebration and the puffing out of the chest and, and the arms back and. Yeah, you know we we you know I don't want to sound like a horrible old fucker, but we need more people like that. Where have they gone?
0: Yeah. Indeed, I would go for that Yeovil goal personally. I I just I love a chip. I do love that Leeds one is one I thought of as well. But I do love. You don't see many of those, and it was a chip that he meant as well. And I know the opposition is has to be taken into account, but I always remember that. And this isn't this is outside Arsenal because we didn't talk about it. obviously he, was, he played for West Ham at the end of his career as well as Forest, Celtic, and Burnley. Less memorably, but obviously the celebration that he did—love
1: him at Forest,
0: do they? How do you know this? Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I remember the celebration at West Ham where he took the mickey out of Paul Alcock And the whole ballet to Canio, and so just summed up. Again, we were talking about celebrations earlier, just summed up the fun nature and how he could, he was able to laugh at the game and not take himself always too seriously. I like really, well, it made me laugh. That little celebration he did with—was it Neil Ruddock? I think he did it with. Um, but let's leave the last word to Chaz. Chaz, what will you take? What's your Favorite abiding memory of ian Right, right, right. I guess it's all the
2: celebrations. I know we all keep saying it, but it was. I remember once he just ran the nearly the entire length of the White Hart Lane pitch. Not Alejandro, but more sort of just joyfully. I remember in a, a very vividly in one match, although not vividly enough to remember who it's against. I think it was at Chelsea where he'd score and he'd just do a little wink, tiniest imperceptible little wink to the away fans as he ran past. And so you'd see on Match of the Day these fans just rising up in complete anger and you couldn't work out and everyone would be like, what's Ian right done wrong? Obviously he scored, but why are they so angry? And it's because nobody else could see this wink, but he'd just do a little one just to send them up. Uh, in terms of favourite goal, I still think the Everton one you mentioned earlier, yeah. Ash. Um, partly because it was just so amazing the way he flicked his defender. Um, was it Matt Jackson, I can't remember. He flicked him one way or the other, but also the fact that without being too lewd, it looked like someone had shot their load on Southall's face. So it was probably just some sort of... Um, Vicks or something but it, it just made him look even more hapless it's like not only is Ian White scored this wonder goal against me for some
0: reason I've got Jizz all
2: over me as well which has always sort of made it a
0: little bit more weird oh there we go that's not a happy ending on to end bombshell. on, yeah on that uh, happy ending that's, uh, that's finished the show about <laughs> 90s icon our first one Mr. Ian Wright uh, thank you very much guys uh, for the show um, Chaz, where can people find you on, the, on Twitter any to plug I know you recently had the, the book and stuff where can people find though, all that info yeah, on Twitter
2: I'm all that Chaz and on Instagram I'm all that chads, and yeah, I've written a book about sort of the joys of running called Running Cheaper Than Therapy.
0: There you go, get it all for your Christmas list, Joel. Where can people talk to you about I'm a celeb and top of the pops?
1: Uh, everything is that Joel Young <laughs> these days. You're, it's you're just, so uh, branded. <laughs> I know I am. Not, well, it's still it's annoying me because I got my old Twitter account taken off me for swearing at a Nazi. So um I had to start again and it was never quite right and oh, yeah. it just bothered me. So yeah, here we are. Um I haven't watched any of the wrestling from over the weekend yet, but if you want to talk to me about that, that's coming.
0: Yeah, that's coming too. And uh, follow myself at Astros UK all uniformed, but more importantly, follow the show at AK nineties on Twitter and at AK nineties pod on Instagram. Thank you very much for downloading the show. Please share, subscribe, like, rate, all that usual nonsense uh, to help us out very much. I've been Ash Rose. He's been Chas Nuki-Burden. He's been Joe Young. This has been Alive and Kicking. Until next time, keep it 90s.